The process of seeing paintings, or anything else, is less spontaneous than what we tend to believe. A large part of seeing depends upon habit and convention. The paintings of the tradition use the convention of perspective, which is unique to European art. Now, perspective centers everything on the eye of the beholder. It is like a beam from a lighthouse, only, instead of traveling outwards, appearances travel in. Our tradition of art called those appearances reality, perspective. Perspective makes the eye the center of the visible world. This is John Berger, an English art critic whose book, Ways of Seeing, offered not just an idea but also an invitation to see and know the world in a different way. The relation between what we see and what we know is never settled, he wrote. He's had profound influence on the popular understanding of art and the visual image. Berger and his fellow art scholars have questioned the relevance of the gaze. What can the gaze do? Who is gazed upon? Who does the gazing? Hi, my name is Valentina, a passionate of arts, language and culture. I'll be your guide to the unknown world of the female gaze and female representation in the film industry. This podcast is in honor of all women and commemorating especially the 8th of March, that is, the International Women's Day. According to the UN, this is a day when women are recognized for their achievements, without regard to divisions, whether national, ethnic, linguistic, cultural, economic, or political. This day also marks a call to action for accelerating and working for gender parity. This podcast segment intends to expose a new point of view from which the viewer can interact with films. For so many years, we've had one normality of what should be included in a movie, how it should be shooted, and imposed on what do we do and what do we want to see as an audience. This podcast invites to reflection, to the awakening of curiosity. In short, to try to see through another pair of eyes. Where should we start? Maybe by the fact that until recently, the film and TV industry has been tailored to male audience and directed by men. Women make only the 10% of directors and 4% of cinematographers. And because of this, the female gaze hasn't had the time to develop itself as much as the male gaze. But why do we use the term gaze? What is the gaze? The gaze is a relatively new term to describe how viewers engage with visual media. According to Chicago School of Media Theory, you can't use the verb to see to portray this interaction with visual media. So the word gaze has been singled out for the discussion. What is specifically about the term gaze? Originating in film theory and criticism in the 1970s, the gaze refers to how we look and engage at visual representations. The gaze describes how viewers engage with visual media and how we look at visual representations. The 20th century has a growing awareness and concern with the implications of the gaze and its role in understanding the function of art. The cinematic concept of the male gaze presented, explained, and developed in 1975 Laura Mulvey's essay called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. She proposes in this essay that sexual inequality, that is, the asymmetry of social and political power between men and women, is a controlling social force in the cinematic representations of women and men, and that the male gaze, this the aesthetic pleasure of the male viewer, is a social construct derived from the ideologies and discourses of patriarchy. In the fields of media studies and feminist film theory, the male gaze is conceptually related to the behaviors of voyeurism, which is looking at sexual pleasure, scopophilia, which is the pleasure from looking, and narcissism, which is the pleasure from contemplating oneself.
Melville's definitions of the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts from a masculine, heterosexual perspective, and this presents and represents women as sexual objects for the pleasure of the heterosexual male viewer. According to Laura Mulvey, the male gaze has two perspectives. The first one is that of the man behind the camera. The second, that of the male character within the film cinematic representation. And finally, that of the spectator gazing at the image. So now, I want you to close your eyes and picture this with me. The scene starts. Open on. A pair of perfect boobs. Unknown identity. A bartender is preparing two piña coladas. Close shot to the boobs. The unknown lady places the drinks on the tray. Carries the tray to a table where two people are talking. Full shot on the girl wearing only a bikini. The drinks are set on the table while doing a close shot on the cleavage. The people talking take their drinks and scene begins. Did Megan Fox, Cameron Diaz, Jessica Alba, just to name some of the most objectified women in Hollywood, appear in your mind? Well, in her essay, Mulvey illustrates her male gaze theory from Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 film Rear Window. Applying Freud's theory of psychoanalysis to discuss the camera angles chosen by the director, the narrative choice, and the props used in the movie. Mulvey argues that the female main character, Lisa Fremont, is constantly asked to be looked at by the spectators through Hitchcock's close-ups and choice of costumes. She depicted all of this while focusing on the concept of the male gaze. So, what is the female gaze? You would imagine the contrary, like a Magic Mike movie for female. No, it's not quite that. <laughs> According to Iris Bray, French journalist and film critic, the female gaze is an alternative gaze on the female and male body. It is a gaze that allows us to share the lived experience of a female body on screen. It is not a gaze created by female artists, but rather one that takes the point of view of a female character in order to embrace her experience. To create it, filmmakers have to physically change the body of the camera, as well as how images are recorded, to inventing and reinventing filming forms in order to come as close as possible to women's experiences. The female gaze can also have more of a feminist gaze than male gaze, according to the translator and art critic Emily Notting. For, for her, it is a critical gaze who does not focus on gender, rather thinks of it as a way of spectator questions the role and place of women, as well as other minorities not conforming to white heteronormative patriarchy. Female gaze is as new to you as it is to the film industry, and because of this, we find more than one definition to it. The definition of female gaze, according to American director and writer Joey Soloway, is The female gaze is a way of feeling, seeing, using a frame to make the audience actually feel the emotions and not just watch the feelings on screen. Feelings and emotions are prioritized over actions and bodies. Bodies are used as tools to portray the emotions, not the contrary. So then again, what is the female gaze? Is it a new way to portray nudity, erotism, and seduction without the need of objectification with the mere purpose of satisfaction of male fantasies? Maybe the female gaze could be seen as a mighty tool to innovate genre that have traditionally been male-driven in different ways, with diversity, while offering another perspective on the world than just a male perspective. So, enough theory and concepts, mm, I'll give you some numbers to illustrate that we still have a lot to work upon in the visual media world. In 2019 and 2020, females comprise 45% of major characters on broadcast, cable and streaming programs. That's something already mm, 
better. Females accounted for 44% of major characters on broadcast programs, 45% on cable programs, and 45% on streaming programs. That's very good. But then, 66% of female characters were white, 20% were black, 8% were Asian, 5% were Latina, and 1% of some other race of it or ethnicity. The majority of female characters were in their 20s and 30s, 58%. Whereas the majority of male characters were in their 30s and 40s, 53%. Across platforms, 75% of male characters, but 65% of females, have identifiable occupations. Further, 57% of males, but 47% of males, were seen in the work environment, actually working. Across platforms, female characters were more likely than males to play mm, life-oriented roles, such as wife and mother. In contrast, male characters were more likely than females to play work-oriented roles, such as business executives. So, before we go to the second part of the podcast, what does all this number mean? Well, to say that gender, race, economic, and general background of the director, or writer, or producer, or cinematographer, or anyone else involved in the production are irrelevant, is to say that there is some definitive version of each movie that the director only has to steer everyone to reach. White men have created 95% of the cinematic images we've ever seen in American mainstream films, which are the most streamed films in history, having made all the micro-decisions related to the shots, the framing, the lighting, the sound design of movies, uh, and everything we have ever seen. It is so powerful, and it has a so big impact on industry, that White men's perspective is shaping the worldview and it has been normalized to the point of being considered the one true, accurate and all-inclusive reflection of reality. Well, it is not. It is one narrow prism which we are all being forced to look. So completely has a male perspective controlled cinema that at this point, until someone clearly points it out to us, it often simply doesn't occur to us that there could be any other perspective. So this podcast invites everyone to, again, look at life from another perspective. As a very special guest for our segment of the female gaze and female representation in the film industry, we have Lucienne Collin, has a master in cinema, as well as one in gender studies. She will take us through the female gaze and representation journey. Hello, uh, my name is Lucienne. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be here, honored as well, because I love talking about it. Um, as Valentina said, I have studied gender in cinema uh, for three years, but I've been interested in all those topics for way longer than that. Um, I've worked on several papers dealing with gender and representation, specifically in U.S. Um, TV, and I have used the concept of the female gaze in my master's thesis. Uh, that was dealing with the series The Bull Type. Mm -hmm. To go back to the definition of the female gaze introduced by Valentina, I see the female gaze at the intersection of what uh, Bray Soloway and the theorists say, the idea that we do not look at bodies the way that we used to, but more we stay away from an objectification of a character for its body in order to see the character as they are, their personality, so their whole self instead of just the body. So it's going beyond the idea of the body and just seeing the person for who they are. And part of this new gaze is to show different form and types of body as well. <clears throat> so this might seem very etheric. And so maybe simplifying it with 
um, with some examples and exemplifying the concept will help her understand its different dimensions. So in this moment, um, listen on me, we didn't really know which movies or series we should choose for, for explaining this because this is a very new concept as she was saying. Um, so our first example will be the comparison of The Handmaid's Tale and The Hunger Games. Well, in case you haven't seen it, I'll give you a short introduction to it. So The Handmaid's Tale is based on Margaret Atwood novel, uh, where it's based in a totalitarian society, Gilead, which is ruled by a fundamentalist regime that treats women as a property of the state, who have a sole purpose, repopulate the earth, forcing fertile women into sexual servitude. On the other hand, we have The Hunger Games, which is also set in a dystopian post-apocalyptic future in Nation of Panem, where annually there is a televised fight to death between the 12 district boys and girls that will serve as tribute to the nation. Though both have a heroine as their main character, and both are described in the media as being female empowering and feminist, a few differences can be underlined, especially when it comes to the gays. How would you describe the gays uh, in The Handmaid's Tale and in The Hunger Games in regards to the male and female gays, Lysian? Well, um, one thing I can say is that one has a clear rejection of the male gays, and it is The Handmaid's Tale. So I'm going to start talking about that show first. Mm -hmm. um, so it was originally a book written by a woman in the 80s. It is a feminist show with, I personally think, a feminist slash female gaze. Why? First, because it... Just, it's a complete destruction of patriarchy and the religion. It really shows a tyranny, and through that, it is actually a critique of this tyranny that is shown through um, a very hard religion and patriarchal society. So it makes you think about the woman's place in our history, in our society nowadays, in our future, especially in the U.S., and when it was Trump at the... Uh, who was president of the United States, you really questioned the parallels that were in between The Handmaid's Tale and its politics. Um, so I found it to be, for, first and foremost, very interesting about how it displays some ingredients that you can possibly find in U.S. society nowadays. Um, but to come back to the definition of the female gaze, and to draw a parallel between the definition and the series, um, the story of The Handmaid's Tale is focused on a protagonist, which is called uh, June or Offered, depending on um, the timeline we are in. And we live most of the storyline through her. We have access to her point of view, to her feelings, to what is what she's experiencing. There's a... An example of a scene that comes to mind. Um, so basically, she is there to reproduce, to have a kid, because um, the person that she is with cannot have a child. And so she is literally within a, um, a house to have a child. And we see that scene where there is this ritual of the male having to have sex with her in order to inseminate her. And we do not see that scene as like a typical sex scene of like the body being like beautiful and everything. We actually see as a very technical stuff. It's just him having sex with her. And at some point the camera changes from being outside of the scene to like through her eyes. And we see the ceiling and just the shaking of the camera 
that goes with the shaking of her body. And so any sexualization is taken out of that scene to just show the act of having sex, but without any passion. And I found that to be extremely representative of this whole series. Yes. I really find super interesting this scene in particularly because, as you say, it's like a rape scene that is converted yeah. into a ritual. It is really interesting how also the takes and shots of the director can show this. And as you say, yeah, through her eyes, you could see that it wasn't pleasant at all, that it was like really dishumanizing. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that relates to what you're saying. When it comes to the objectification of a woman's body, the show are literally objectifying this body and the society is objectifying the body of the woman for the sole purpose of having babies. But we see that this representation is not a positive one, as you just said. It is rather a denunciation of the way that women's bodies are used in the past, nowadays sometimes, and in religious groups. And so this literal objectification allows for a really harsh critique. The, their body is used as an object to denounce this objectification, And that is what is very important in that show. Um, the last thing I would say about uh, The Hammond's Tales is that, is that it also shows a variety of women's point of view and what different women are going through. And that is one very important point that Notaris says in her, in her definition of the feminist case is that we don't just access one point of view of a woman, but we also show different experiences because obviously women do not experience the same thing depending on their social characteristics. And that is something that The Hamid's Tale really also tries and depicts. Totally. So I would highly recommend to watch that show um, for the story, but also for the representation and the new representation it can offer. Totally. I think not only as, as a series, but as a book, it really criticize a lot of things that we have in our society and it also talks about all the women in in this series they're fighting against each other because of because of the system so i think this is something that we also portray in our actual society we're also fighting against each other and you know there's a lot of things that are portrayed that are super interesting in this series but now let's go to the second part so how about the hunger games the movie also portrays a female protagonist facing the norms and rules of the society she lives in so what does this female lead represent for you Lisa? well hunger games is a bit more complicated in my opinion um there is not a visible male gaze because her body is not sexually objectified uh, except when it is to denounce the sexual objectification that the society does. Um, for example, when she like when she is at the capital, which is the, the main city, she is way more feminine, but all of this is an attire in order to convince judges to give her something to survive. And so, again, like the handmaid's tale, it is not there to sexually objectify her but i also wouldn't say it's a um it's a female case but i'm gonna continue a little bit on saying why the male case is not as present as other typical um movies we could have seen before so in addition to her body not being sexually objectified she is we could say she is a resistance symbol instead of a sex symbol mm -hmm. And therefore, it does not 
follow uh, what the authors previously previously mentioned and said. Nonetheless, though it doesn't use a specific male gaze, I also um, sorry. Nonetheless, though it doesn't use the female body as a sexual object per se, it still uses it as an object. It uses it as an object in the way that it's her body and her life are seen by the entirety of the country. Her actions are completely de deconstructed for the, purpose, uh, for the purpose of a live TV show. I have a question for you. Do you think yes. it's possible to have a neutral gaze? Like in this case, would it be a neutral gaze? or I, I wouldn't say it's a neutral gaze because... A male gaze is the action of objectifying a woman, and the feminist gaze is the action of reversing that gaze and thinking about putting the experience of the woman um, on the spotlight. It, I wouldn't say it's a neutral gaze. I would more say that it's just a way of representing that does not have the the male gaze integrated, but as I will explain later, even though we don't objectify her body, the male gaze is present in other ways. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't take the literal definition of the male gaze in, their, in the movies, but we still see something. But we can definitely um, feel the fact that it was written, the books were written by a woman, because it is definitely a... Books and movies don't have a feminist perspective, mm -hmm. and so that's why it's a little bit complicated to navigate in between the two gays, because there is this dimension of a woman who have written it and who shows that Katniss, so the main character, is someone who is against the patriarchy, who is against the capital, and against the tyranny. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's a neutral gaze. I would say it's an in-between. So we can see the, the male gaze and the female gaze. At least that's how I see it in mm -hmm. order to analyze movies and TV shows more as a continuum. Mm -hmm. And you can be in-between. You don't have to be in one of the extreme. You can also be in between. And I think Hunger Games is an in-between movie. So yes. you were talking about the femininity represented and how it rejects some norms? Yes. So the question I think with this movie is not if it is a male gaze or a female gaze, but more how women and femininity is represented and how it rejects some norms while also reinforcing others. So as we said, Katniss is the main role in the Hergie Games. She is the heroine and she questioned traditional gender norms by several things. First, she incorporates feminine and masculine characteristics in her behavior, her appearance, her mentality, Uh, one striking example is the fact that she is the breadwinner of her family. Normally, that role is given to a male. Uh, that role has been constructed in the 19th century in the way that the men were bringing money into the household while the mother and the, the female had to take care of children. In French... The word is very interesting because it's homme gagnant, so basically it leaves no possibility of being a gender neutral concept. It's mm -hmm. like the male, whereas in in English it's a little bit more neutral. But yeah, so she has a 
she has a an action and she has the breadwinner side of her that is usually very masculine but here it's a woman who takes that role she can also throw an arrow like no one else can it is actually one thing that the judges notice when she's about to enter the arena is that she is really good with a bow and arrow mm -hmm. um so that's more of masculine trait but she can also Uh, be very caring about people. She has a very caring personality towards her family, towards Pita, towards just everyone. Um, and so, for example, she enters the game because her sister gets chosen and her sister is only 13 and she cannot understand how her sister is going to survive and she's afraid for her. And so she gives herself, she, she, she becomes the tribute, the person who's going to go into the arena because of her care personality. And so she's just like June slash offered in The Handmaid's Tale. She's the symbol of the resistance. She has agency, so that means that she has the capability of actions. So she can do actions. Um, and so she's countering the usual passivity given to women. Usually women are like not able to do anything. They have to ask men how to do it. But Katniss takes, takes decision, even if it can put her life into danger, she has that capability to be called into action and to do things her own way. She fights for her life. She is a survivor. Another thing that questions usual gender representation is that she used what is called a gender performance. It is a concept that has been created by Judith Butler in the 19s, and that basically is there to explain that gender is a social construction. And so basically what gender performance is, is, and we all do it in our life. When we get up, we put on some clothes, we put makeup or not, we decide on how we act, on how we dress, and that gives information about the way we want to be gendered. And so it's very important to remember that gender is not biological, but it's very much a social construction. And so Katniss embodies that gender performance she acts the way that the capital wants her to do in order to survive but what she really is is very far from being the stereotypical female body and uh, personality and so it's also a very important message that the actress playing Katniss so Jennifer Lawrence also represents she is not an actress like the main actresses in Hollywood. She says what she wants to say. She acts the way that she wants to. And so it's very important to have someone like that um, on on TV and on the, the big screen, but also in reality, in order to say that a woman can be anything that she wants and she doesn't. She certainly doesn't need to follow the norms to be her true self. Um, so these are like the main things that questions the gender norms. But despite refusing those gender traditions, the character also falls into other ones, unfortunately. And that is um, what I was saying when this movie was a little bit complicated. Not contradictory, but more complicated in the way that it portrays uh, an empowering woman. So for one, she is yet another female character that is taken into a love triangle. So it's her, it's Peta. And it's Gail. So it's her and two boys. And so despite all of her revolutionary action and thoughts and everything that she does during the three movies, during the three 
books, in the end, she ended up in a heterosexual relations, white heterosexual relation, if I can add, with kids. And she takes up this motherhood. And so, whereas in the beginning, she had masculine and feminine traits, she was a breadwinner, but also she was a caregiver here. She's just a caregiver. And so the ending completely abolishes her masculine trait that was so important in her empowering journey to become like this fierce and like this this warrior. And so in the end, we're like, okay, but why does she come back to that after all of what she's been through? And it's kind of like a setback into all of her, all of the evolution of her, um, of her persona and her character. Um, I don't know what you think about the ending. She's been fighting constantly and like developing herself into uh, an amazing character because she really leaves her town and she becomes a, a rebel and a symbol of revolution. And then at the end, like just the last second is her with, with two kids, uh, with longer hair. But I really felt this is like what people were expecting to see. Like, as I said before, we've been set up into a norm of what should we see, how should be the happy ending. And in general, well, the happy ending is a family with kids, a happy marriage. And I think this is what most of the Hollywood movies show. I really felt it wasn't necessary. <laughs> but <laughs> I agree, yeah, I agree. It is a, a little bit of a setback, and the thing is, what I what I personally think is that if a character, and even a woman in real life, but since we're talking about representation, if during a movie, the evolution of the character leads to that um, family-oriented um, woman, I completely agree that in the end, she can be like that. I have nothing against motherhood. Like, if people want to be mothers and everything... They can. It's wonderful. But what I didn't like about the the ending of The Hunger Games is that she is building herself as the complete opposite, and then we end up with that. And that is my little issue with it. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to finish on that little um, counter-arguments about the empowerment of Katniss, I would also like to say that though she has agency, she's not completely free of all of her action. She is being influenced and sometimes stopped from doing what she wants by men. It is clear that the patriarchal society always comes back and always stops her from being a completely free woman. Mm-hmm. And moreover, and more importantly, it is shown that she is a tool and object to use in a greater fight. She becomes this symbol of resistance, and then she's being used by their resistant leader. She's always used as a tool or an object, except in the arena. In the arena, she can be herself, which is very interesting if you think about it, because in the arena who's supposed to be controlled by this capital, this tyranny government, she is free of doing whatever she wants. She's going to get consequences, but at least she can decide what she wants. Whereas when she steps into the reality, or at least what is shown to be the reality, that is when she is tricked into being used. And so I find it to be actually very contradictory and, and an inversion of the world. Um, so that's something that might be thought about, is how the movie actually switches the two places of the arena being 
normally super controlled, but she's free of doing stuff. Whereas in reality, where she should be free of doing stuff, she's actually not free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, she's she's this tool during the three movies. She is there to end the fight on tyranny. But then when she becomes this symbol of resistance, unfortunately, she is embarked into another tyranny that's going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and she noticed it, by the way, in the end. And therefore, um, spoiler alert, by the way, ends <laughs> up killing the other person. <laughs> um, so she does notice and she does try to fight against it. But unfortunately, her character is always used or always tries to be used by someone else. And though that, um, that, that shows first that Caddis is never free of her actions. She is used by someone as an object to hurt someone else, to hurt a, a government, to hurt an ideal. And the second thing is, even though this objectification is not sexual, the gender performance that she does for President Snow, unfortunately, is it is what I was saying before is the way that she is dressed up. She wears dresses. She wears makeup. And though it's a gender performance, it still reiterates the standards of femininity. Mm-hmm. And so it's also very dual. So in conclusion, to follow on to the next examples, I would say that the Hunger Games, therefore, it definitely doesn't have a female gaze. But it follows a path to female empowerment, and it tries to let go of the, of the male gaze. So it, it is in that continuum that is an in-between, but it's going towards a female case, but it's not there yet.